When I get older, losing my head Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine If I'd been out till quarter to three Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64 Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we, our last episode, this is the 151st episode. Yeah, we've, yeah. We've said where it's, it's, it's totally anticlimactic. Yeah, no, no. The next, I guess, milestone we have, we have 50 episodes. That could be 25 weeks away, though. Like, what is that, like Christmas time? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, around Christmas time, maybe a little bit after. Yeah, we're halfway to Christmas, so, well, but, uh, yeah, and again, thanks. It's nice to, it was a lot of nice comments, and thank you all for your support, and we're looking forward to uh, this next lap that we go on. And one more time around the track. We'll be coming around the mountain when we come. There we go. I was in the mountains. You were in the mountains of North Carolina. Yeah, they're beautiful. Very, very nice. I was off the grid. You were <clears throat> completely off completely the grid. Completely off the grid. It was great. It really was good. Well, we, we, we've, there's much going on in the world. Do you want to come? Before we get into our topic of the day, do you want to comment on any world events? <laughs> I mean, there's so much. By the way, did you see that? The both senators who are the Republicans who are running for the nomination for the special election, oh, who, who will certainly win, and yeah. Alabama, like they've both agreed to step down <laughs> and let Jeff Sessions appear on the ballot to get his own seat back. <laughs> I, I, I know there's something. Uh, it says the the irony is dripping all over the place when Jeff Sessions, Eagle Scout, you know, right wing extraordinaire. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the sympathetic figure in the administration. Uh, yeah, I mean that's pretty. I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's part of me going, gosh, you know, if Jeff Sessions quits, I'm, I'm not so. I, I, that's I, that's not so upsetting to me until I realize the context of why he might quit. That's upsetting, but yeah, I know. And and uh, I, I, that Boy Scout thing. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, all these parents who protect their children. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, and I, you know what he did on that boat, kids. Oh right? my, uh, I can't go into your boy scouts, but you know life. You know life. So uh, I mean, we're we're led to believe that they should emulate this guy who was opulent and Studio Fifty Four type that then could have his own private sex parties on his yacht right, with illegal aliens. Yeah, you know. <clears throat> yeah. Now I will say that uh, most of the deviant things I learned. As a young adolescent, was through Boy Scouts. You didn't. I, I was in Boy Scouts when I was, I guess, what eleven and twelve, and uh, that was the Vietnam era. And uh, the older Scouts, they were hippie. Matter of fact, I think you could get a merit badge in my troop for uh, rolling a joint. I think that was a merit badge. They were a pretty deviant group. Matter of fact, the one jamboree that I went to was right after the uh, Olympics. Well, the nineteen sixty eight Olympics, where the black uh, you remember the, the the black athletes held their fist up when they were getting the awards? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had yeah. guys in our troop that held their fist up during the national anthem. So it was a, it was an interesting group of people. This was from South Central Pennsylvania too. So I think all twelve hippies that were in my county were all in my <laughs> were all in my Boy Scout troop. But well, there it, you go. Yeah. So the idea that Boy Scouts is it was supposed to be a place where you learn, uh, you know. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, brave, clean, and reverent. I still remember most of those. Yeah, I, I think uh, 
Yeah, I would I would have Donald Trump come and speak to the youth of America. The young people. The young the, the, young, pe- the young people. And the fact that, you know, uh he's still talking about his election night. Yeah, there was a great thing though too. Price was saying, Hey, this is my health and senior secretary. He doesn't get the votes for it. What is he gonna hear? You're fired. Everybody was like, Yeah <laughs> I, I guess there's does did anyone Brief him what the Boy Scouts are. <laughs> no way to do they don't have them in Queens. No, I no, I don't. I don't know. It was. Uh, it certainly was uh, theater of the absurd, which continues to be our our uh, uh, time. What did you think about McCain's speech? I actually listened to it live while I was uh, driving back here. Um, I have mixed feelings about. It. What was your response to his? I mean, I, I think that on one level, right that this is the whole political theater of it right so you you get a vote to start debate right right which means now you need 60 votes for anything right because the filibuster's in play now which wasn't in play before right Right. so on one level it's complex because regular order is now nothing's gonna happen and I, i think mccain was trying to say if we go to regular order then we'll have to come together and work on healthcare reform together or something. I, I think. I mean, I, I don't know. I, well, I, you know, part of it to me, first of all, um, in many ways, he's a man who he's such a complicated guy. I mean, because he is a war hero, he sometimes has deserved better than he's gotten. According, he's a, not according to all, not including according all right, to our president. Right. I like it better when my heroes don't get captured. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but he's certainly been a mixed figure publicly. I mean, people forget about it. he was part of the Keating was it the Keating Five? Yeah, you know, he got, he 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 almost lost his political career because of a, a banking or credit union scandal back in the uh, I guess that was what was that in the eighties nineties I don't remember. But at any rate, uh, you know, there's, it was a mixed thing. I mean, I, I I appreciate what he said about trying to get back to what the Senate could and should be. He raised a good constitutional point that the Senate is equal to the president, something that uh, the modern presidency has forgotten, I think actually is a pretty good corrective. There's more in the Constitution about the Speaker of the House, right, than the presidency. Isn't there more ink on the Speaker? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't recall that. I don't know. But there's, that could be. But the whole point that of the balance of powers, that's part of the reason, you know— um, like, for instance, treaties and such have to be ratified by the Senate. I mean, the Senate has say in foreign policy and the House has say in financial things. So those were to be checks on the executive. So I, I thought that was part was, was good. Um, again, there's, there's part of the reason that speech, part of why you admire and part of why you, you know, kind of glad he never became president. So it's an interesting – it was an interesting thing. And uh, just before I got in here, they did vote – they voted forty or fifty-five to forty-five not to merely repeal Obamacare. It's harder when you have to live with the consequences of the vote, right? You know that's a uh, that's a tougher thing. And I also say, you know, you know, God bless the Republican women senators. I mean, I think they're getting a little bit of their revenge. They didn't let them on the committee to to write the thing, and so uh, Mikowski from Alaska. I thought she said some. She says, "I'm not here to run for re-election every day. I'm here to serve." And she goes, well, "How about we govern for once?" So uh, good for her. So there are some novel people, thoughts. 
there are some people showing some courage there. So we'll it remains to be seen what will happen. Well, there you go. There we are. So and, I, and my wife remarked the other day, we, uh, this is... This was great. You know, we were trying to think about, you know, how hard it is for the Republicans to work on the health care reform. Because like, I was like, what's the analysis thing for the Democrats? She's like, it's if the, it's they inherited a mandated... Uh, arming policy where all citizens had to had to bear arms <laughs> you know for homeland for the interest of homeland security and then the democrats had to implement it <laughs> yeah well maybe crossbows in dc you know, or, you know, like, yeah, or muskets in connecticut yeah exactly i mean it's one of those things where like it's tough to have to do a policy that you, you don't believe that, you, that you're not really you know where, where you really think health care is a private thing that one-sixth of the economy shouldn't have really any or minimal government you know influence then it's hard then to craft a governmental bill (laughs) because of just the government's involvement in medicare government's biggest biggest government keep your hands off my medicare (laughs) that's right the biggest uh, the biggest player in it so at any rate yeah it's kind of a mess so on to joseph ratzinger or for well formerly ratzinger uh, Benedict now, but we, I came. I tweeted this thing out, and a lot of people seem to find it interesting. This was uh, we uh, had tip to Bill, Billy Ryan, who I have no idea who he is, but he has this U Catholic website, which he it, under which he posted in the blog the lost prophecy of Father Joseph Ratzinger on the future of the church, and he has a nice little background on Ratzinger's history and his relationship with the Vatican Council, and he talks about in it this, this 2009 Ignatius uh, press released um, Ratzinger's speech, What the Church Will Look Like in 2000, in full in a book titled Faith and Future, along with a collection of his other teachings from the time. So he published the transcript of a 1969 radio broadcast where Ratzinger talked about the future of the church, and, you know, and he's thinking in the future, in the coming centuries, in a secular modern western world and man i mean i no one's going to agree with all of it right but it's edgy and provocative and forward thinking and yeah i mean i was i was as we think towards the new persuasive words in the future to the 200th episode (laughs) i thought quite appropriate but you know he's the opening paragraph he says the future of the church can and will issue from those whose roots are deep and who live from the pure fullness of their faith. It will not issue from those who accommodate themselves merely to the passing moment or from those who merely criticize others and assume that they themselves are infallible measuring rods. Nor will it issue from those who take the easier road, who sidestep the passion of faith, declaring false and obsolete, tyrannous and legalistic, all that makes demands upon men that hurts them and compels them to sacrifice themselves. Yeah, yeah you know, part of the context of this talk was his you know, he was really one of the intellectual uh, movers and shakers for Vatican II. And for those of you— And yet it was kind of, you know, some of the people like Kung and Rahner, who were also prominent theologians, he, he was not—you know, that was not—he didn't have a ton of fraternity with those guys. Well, part of what—you know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, and I think, of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, you need to think in terms of centuries, sometimes not decades— but I think Vatican II, for open its initial, the initial interpretation of Vatican II uh, was uh, 
of most the most radicals kind of took the reins, like the Kungs and the others. And so there was almost a a liberal Protestantism that was driving a lot of um, what went on with some of the folks who initial implications from Vatican II. Um, you know, I, I think if you think of, uh, you know, if you think of the figures you named as figures from Vatican II, you also have to say Ratzinger and John Paul II are equally, you know, they are equal sons of that, of that movement. Because, well, yeah, yeah. And, and in this little piece in the intro, it talks about how when he went to Regensburg, he developed these relationships with von Balthasar and Henri de Lubac, and they founded that journal Communio, and this kind of odd font taste, this sort of back to the patristic sources. I mean, I think Ratzinger found his voice much more with those guys. Yeah, and, and I think there was a sense where, um, again, you know, part of my Latin exam for my PhD was I had to, I had to translate sections of Vatican II from the original Latin that was written in. Uh, so <laughs> spent a lot of time in the Latin form of Vatican II. But, uh, you know, I think Vatican II was, was an attempt to, I think, uh, un, would you say, and again, we're not experts on this, but in part it it's was— Never stopped us before. Never stopped us before. But it was to undo some of the short-sightedness of Vatican I. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there was a kind of rigid neo-Thomism. There was a, some other rigid sort of dogmatism that, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, there's a reason we don't talk about uh, very many Catholic, great Catholic lights— from Vatican I. <laughs> from Vatican I forward. I mean, and, you know, if you talk about important Catholic thinkers, you know, in the 19th century, John Henry Newman comes up and he was an outlier in the 19th, or, yeah, in the 19th century. Many people think that he partially anticipated Vatican II. So in many ways, Vatican II was, an, was a return to uh, emphasis on roots, renewal, laity. Um, I mean, I think, for instance, the new Catholic catechism is a wonderful instruction of faith, that's a product of what, of a renewal of parish education, a greater role for the laity. Uh, there was an attempt to kind of get away from some of the bureaucracy, um, you know, which that's still, still working through that. But uh, for some people, I thought it was, it was an, in many ways, an attempt to reform the church almost to the point where it's no longer the Roman Catholic Church. And I think part of Ratzinger's, in this, in this essay, is uh, a little bit of his of his disillusionment with that. You know, I am reminded of Aquinas. You know, Aquinas was deeply disturbed by uh, you know those within his. You know, he defended Aristotle to a point, but he was deeply disturbed by those around him who wanted to push things what he thought were beyond the realm of the church. And I think Raskiner, this is a partially a reaction to what he sees as the shadow side of Vatican II. Yeah, he, he says some great things, you know, like, it, the kind of priest who is no more than a social worker can be replaced by the psychotherapist and other specialists. But the priest who is no specialist, who does not stand on the sidelines watching the game, giving official advice, but in the name of God places himself at the disposal of man who is beside them in their sorrows and their joys and their hope and in their fear, such a priest will certainly be needed in the future. I saw, and I didn't read it, but it's, um, I've been dealing with the hard numbers on the ground with different churches and things like that, that uh, the that the middle-class pastor is is leaving, you know, is evaporating because churches can't afford, can't afford to, to, to uh, 
to keep people in in staff. And I think it's interesting because he's seen a day where the church becomes smaller. Yeah, he yeah. It's break. And I think, um, you know, that's really uh, part of what's going on within Protestantism uh, and denominations, not even denominations, non-denominational churches, where only the richer ones are going to be able to, either the ones that don't pay anything, you know, <laughs> so are going to continue to go, and, and the ones that are more affluent. But you see all around us, the you know, the all those calls that used to be out there 40 years ago, that you know, the medium-sized churches, those are those are evaporating. Yeah, he even says that you know from the crisis of today, the church of tomorrow will emerge—a church that has lost much. She will become small and have to start afresh, more or less, from the beginning. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. As the number of adherents diminishes, so will it lose many of her social privileges. This is remarkable for a Catholic to say. In contrast to an earlier age, it will be seen much more as a voluntary society, entered only by free decision. As a small society, it will make such bigger demands on the initiative or individual members. And he talks about discover new forms of priesthood, uh, that uh, they will, you know, people will be ordained that are pursuing some other profession. Uh, many smaller congregations are in self-contained social groups. Pastoral care will normally be provided in this fashion. He doesn't think that priests, the professional priesthood will go away. But he thinks a, a huge part of the pastoral care will be done by somebody who's a lawyer and a priest, or a social worker and a priest, or a banker and a priest. So, I mean, he really, he's seeing, I mean, talk about all these people that talk about bivocational ministry. I mean, he's, he's predicting a bivocational priesthood. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, and he kind of, and, and he thinks that this is not a terrible thing, right? I mean, he, 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 he has hope that he thinks that, that uh, when the trial of the sifting is past, a great power will flow from a more spiritualized and simplified church. Men in a totally planned world will find themselves unspeakably lonely. If they've completely lost sight of God, they will feel the horror of the whole horror of their poverty. Then they will discover the little flock of believers as something wholly new. They will discover it as a hope that is meant for them, an answer for which they have always been searching in secret. That's a powerful thing. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, we we joke about those who rail against Christendom and and uh, talk about its demise, but uh, there's a real practical dimension to the shifts that are going on in our culture. And I do think there are remarkable opportunities uh, for different kinds of ministry, uh, for a kind of of um, renewed sense that you know, even you know, you were at my you know my little parish this past week, and it's a place that. Uh, it deeply cares about its community, about each other, and there's some real spiritual renewal going on there. Yeah, no, I mean it's a, yeah, it was. I had a wonderful experience. It was it was a fun, fun time and a good good spirit on the people. Yeah, and I think, um, but there are a lot of logistical practicalities that are going to be problematic. I mean, for me, <clears throat> what's what's the educated situational clergy going to look like fifty years from now? We see all these seminaries closing down. We already, I mean, I fought against it when I was teaching the dumbing down of the curriculum, but the truth of the matter is that people who are going to seminary, most of them are working other places. They can't devote full time to school. Uh, they still want the A's, which is the problem. You know, a part of me would say, I don't mind, I don't mind, uh, accommodating your schedule, but the fact that you're not, you're doing half the work and you still want the A, that was the problem for me. Uh, I mean, I think if people were just willing to learn and then, you know, get the grade they deserve, but it's part of the entitlement that happens in these kind of situations. But I'm I'm concerned the fact that there's not 
there's a dumbing down of the education. As a matter of fact, there's even people advocating consistent dumbing down of the curriculum, saying that we need more practical uh, teaching in seminary. The worst place in the world to learn pra- practical ministry is seminary. You know, seminary, you should be learning the, the biblical languages. You should learn your theology. You should learn good critical tools for using the text. You need to learn church history, historical theology, and some couple of basic pastoral counseling classes, and you learn how to do stuff out there in the real world. I think it's a mistake. It's a huge mistake changing curriculum because what we now are, we're giving people even less of the things than most of them aren't going to learn on their own. This podcast can be your curriculum, friends. It might have to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, can I, you know, a hundred years ago after the collapse, they find these files somewhere, and people exactly. are they're huddled around in caves. This will be the uh, the new persuasive words uh, underground seminary somewhere. But uh, no, I, so I think it's a powerful statement. Particularly, I mean, he is talking about Prost and the kind of Protestant problems from a position. Uh, where I think he, he uh, you know, you, you look at—here's a good example of this at the Roman Catholic Church. Um, in Long Branch, New Jersey, uh, there was this really thriving poor parish that was mostly Spanish-speaking. And they consolidated the, the, the parish that was in the, the Spanish-speaking. They shut it down. And their people kept coming—they kept coming to the church— and the you know the diocese said no you can't come here anymore. So the Episcopal Church that was next door to them opened the door, and all of, you know this was four hundred people coming to mass every week in this kind of uh, renegade Catholic church, uh, which that that had more of the spirit of Ratzinger than what the official diocese <laughs> you know action had done because it was a beautiful group of people, and. Uh, you know they they didn't they didn't want they weren't they weren't buying the reorganization. Of course, we've seen, you know, I mean that's been you know in the years since he has said this. It was 1969. I mean, gosh, city after city, the uh, the heart wrenching closing down of parishes, and you know you drive around any major city in this country and you see all these huge, uh, dilapidated cathedrals. Not only Catholic cathedrals, you see. You know, the old first, second, third churches are no longer uh, what they originally were, if they're anything. My friend Zach was coordinator for a while for the Archdiocese for special events and parish closings. I was like, man, you know what they play when you come into the parish. Don't fear the reaper. <laughs> um, that would be like the worst committee in the history of everything. <laughs> so I want to say, so this is something I was reading. So I, I, I like a lot of what's in here. It's a little dour for me, a little dark. Uh, so I want to. This is something I was reading, looking at the lecturing text from Robert Capon, which if you've never read his book on the parables, so are you, you going to go happy on us? Or are you going to go positive? I, I might, I might, I might. I mean, <laughs> he's talking about this is a section on the treasure and the pearl, you know, the pearl of great price. Um, he says this. Therefore, the church is precisely Catholic, not Christian. It is not a sacrament to the few of a salvation that they have, but the world does not. Rather, it is the chosen sign of the salvation of the entire world. And to return to the purchase of the entire field by the man in the parable, the church has not only to buy, to deal with the whole world, it must also, if it is to be any decent kind of sign at all, look as much like the world and be as little different from the world as possible. 
Yes, I know the church is indeed to be the salt of an otherwise bland earth, but that doesn't mean that the church itself is supposed to be all salt or that it is supposed to turn the world into nothing but salt. Therefore, when it represents itself to the world, it probably should not, first of all, be seen as salt. That's misleading advertising. You don't put donuts in the window of a shoe store. (laughs) That only confuses the public about your real business. Likewise, you don't turn the church into a a sodality that consists only of bright white Anglo-Saxons who are happily married, have 1.8 children, and never get drunk. Instead, you just let it be what it is, what it in fact already is, a random sampling of the broken, sinful, half-cock world that God and Christ loves, dampened by the waters of baptism, but in no way necessarily turned into perfect peaches by them. And he he says, the church, like the purchase of the field, can never afford to leave unbought any part of the earthly field in which God has hidden the treasure of the mystery. And I think there's something like, that Halik is something like, like I, I hear in Halik, the Ratzinger and the Capon. You know, there's something about there's right. there's there's something about in Halik a kind of uh, he he's 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 his tone is a little darker than Capon. Capon, after all, is a, an Episcopalian who <laughs> makes his own bread. <laughs> yeah, but I I think that something about like that's that I need that accent to balance off some of the things that I think I are very moving in the Ratzinger piece, but they're, they're, it is a stern kind of prophecy without a lot of joy. Well, I th- and I bet you in 1969, there was, he would have no idea he would ever be Pope, or someone like John Paul II would be Pope either. I mean, I think uh, it's, I, and I think Halleck, Halleck is pastoring in the reality, in part, that Ratzinger, you know, Ratzinger was looking maybe to the West, but, but Halleck is pastoring in that kind of reality in, you know, post-communist uh, uh, the Czech Republic, and in the midst of the desert, he's, there's an awful lot of amazing things happening in his small part of the world in Parish. And so I, I, to me, I think, um, you know, we all have gone to uh, those seminars that will remain nameless of the, uh, of the group that declared that uh, Christendom has ended and charges people lots of money to tell you that. Um, and I've, you and I have both been at uh, denominational meetings where people were bemoaning this and that. But the church is going to continue. I mean, I think sometimes uh, we can, you know, if you go too far with where Rasker was in 1969, you can be like Elijah, you know, uh, after the great, you know, yeah. after the victory and uh, God having to remind them, hey, I'm still here. I've got some folks out there. It's just not you. And, uh, I do think that, um, to me, whatever the dark side of what Ratzinger was saying, the really the fruit of of uh, when when the church is impoverished, um, it's often is when it really needs to say its prayers. I mean, the fact that when we have money in the bank, when we're you know numbers are coming in the door, when we know how everything's going to work out. You don't need to pray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's this great phrase that, like, that Moltmann said that, and I hear this in Capon, and that's kind of what I, what I think I like about that passage. That he says, the church of God doesn't have a mission in the world. The God of mission has a church in the world. And so God goes ahead of us, and, and, and you know, God works in, in many and mysterious ways. And I think that that, like, that the success or failure, a perceived success or failure, because it's like wheat and tear stuff. We don't know right. what the ultimate f- 
uh, hard fruit looks like long term very often. But I think that we can be encouraged that uh, that we our faith is not in any institution you know that is of our making, but in in a heavenly city whose architect and builder is God. Absolutely, you know I've, I've been to a number of UNESCO sites in Cyprus, and there are these little these little they look like huts on the outside. I mean, and you have to climb up the hill and there's somebody in a pub that has the key to it. And you walk in and there's these primitive little buildings with these amazing icons on them. And, you know, a lot of crazy stuff happened in Cyprus throughout the centuries. You know, you just, uh, everybody passed. Cyprus going wild. Everybody, well, yeah, everybody conquered it. Uh, but what amazed me in these this, these little places and these little mountainous villages, uh, whether, you know, some people avoided the iconoclastic, you know, controversy, whatever. But there's these amazing pictures of faith, and there's layers of them. And so, not just for hundreds of years, but for over a thousand years, people, small groups of people, uh, said their prayers in these places, and they left records of the beauty and depth of their experience of grace and. Uh, some of the most amazing images you can find in all of Christianity are in there, and they were made by small people that will never know who their name was. B.B. Warfield, who was a post-millennialist and thought history would go on for very, very, very long, said that one day they'll look at Augustine and 19th century Princeton Calvinism as two different phases of the life of the early church. So, well, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. 